Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Donald Mazzella, and I am Editorial Director of Small Business Digest. Each hour here at Small Business Digest Radio, we hope to bring you information, strategies, and suggestions to help small small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. We have an an exciting and interesting program this week covering uh, how to make your website friendlier to mobile devices, what you should know as a small business owner about the coming healthcare insurance exchanges, and how to sell your business in the face of the oncoming tsunami. Of, uh, and that's an interesting point. Uh, we have, uh, as our first guest, right here in the studio, uh, but we're going to wait on Jerry, because hopefully Bajorn Bourne is, on, is here. Bajorn, are you on? Bajorn? Okay, well that that's uh, that's what happens when you have uh, uh, technology. But I'm hoping Bajorn will call back. But in the meantime, thankfully, we have Jerry Mills here. He's a CEO of B2B CFO, but more importantly, he's the author of a new book, The Exit Strategy Handbook. Uh, interesting point: we had someone on a couple of weeks ago who talked about preparing and selling your company for more than it was worth. And it was our highest-rated show. We expect this one, because we have you with us today, Jerry, uh, to, to make it even more. Uh, first, tell us a little bit about your background. Okay, I, was, uh, I started my career after getting an accounting degree with a CPA firm called, named Arthur Anderson. And uh, that's where I came up with this idea of B2B CFO. And I... Um, I then started this business, uh, B2B CFO, in 1987, and I've been doing this ever since. In 2001, the company consisted of me in one state. Uh, today, there's 220 of us in 45 states, so we're pretty much nationwide. But tell us about you. Well, uh, a little bit about me. Uh, I, I was born in Huntington Beach, California. Uh, I, uh, I've been married 38 years to the same beautiful woman. I have four children and uh, four and a half grandchildren, so I'm very proud about that. Okay. Uh, I used the term, an oncoming tsunami, which uh, I got from you. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, most people are familiar that uh, we, uh, we know that there are, in the United States, about 78 million baby boomers that are going to retire over the next uh, couple decades. What most people don't know is that those baby boomers own about 43% of what the SBA calls small businesses, meaning companies with 500 or fewer employees. And so uh, in the next uh, few years, they're going to be doing something with those 12 million businesses. Now, what's happening is uh, through through uh, uh, various uh, um, processes, they're their children uh, are not going to take over those businesses. Their children are not interested in it. Their children are going to do other things. And so what's going to happen is uh, we're going to have a flood of businesses hit the market, and they are going to be asking buyers to to buy the businesses, either strategic buyers or or investors like uh, PEGs, uh, private equity groups, 
uh, MBOs, management buyouts, ESOPs, employee stock ownership plans, and so forth. Now, what's going to happen is, uh, if you look at the, the history of the market, uh, over the, from 2007 to 2012, um, the uh, statistics are that there have been about 8,000 companies, privately held companies, sold every year during that period of time. Baby boomers are going to add another 378,000 companies to the market. And what's going to happen is, uh, and my fear is, what's going to happen is we're going to enter into a buyer's market. And then uh, not only are baby boomers who own businesses not going to be able to sell their businesses for what they're worth, a lot of them are not going to be able to sell their businesses at all. They're basically going to liquidate. They're going to shut their doors. And when they do that, uh, several things are going to happen. Uh, most businesses have uh, owe money to banks, uh, lines of credits and other things. And the question is, are they going to be able to even pay off their debt? The second issue is these businesses have employees. Some of them have 40, 100, 200 employees. When, if they don't go through a process and are not able to sell their business, those employees are going to be laid off. Going to be shut the door. They're not there, and, and so uh, I call it the baby boomer tsunami, or we do, because uh, most people uh, are are thinking these 78 million uh, baby boomers are going to quit their job and retire and go to Florida. Well, uh, they own 12 million businesses. They employ tens of millions of people, and the economy is going to be significantly affected if they're if they don't transition properly when they sell their businesses. Well, let me go back a minute. You said 8,000, and you then you said 300, is it? 378,000. 370,000. Mm -hmm. That's almost a, a tenfold increase. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And, and, that, and that's why I feel we're going to be moving into a buyer's market. Uh, the, the, the question is, who's going to buy the, all these companies, these additional companies? And, and what's the compelling reason for them, one, to buy, buy, and two, what's the compelling reason for them to buy at a higher or, or at the value that the baby boomers want or need in order to no. retire? No. That's an astonishing statistic, um, and I'll probably get back to it later on. Because, uh, but now, you're a small business owner. You're, you're 64 years old, and well, I'm, I'm 60. Let's correct. Me. Well, not you. Oh, okay. <laughs> you being the, okay. the proverbial you out there. Okay. <laughs> uh, but let me, uh, but let me just stop here. Why don't the children want to go into a ready-made business? Oh, that's a great question. Um, in in my research for the book, uh, there there are several reasons why. First, if you look at the apex, the top of the baby boomer uh, population, it was it it was 1957. It hit 4.3 million births that year in the United States. If you look 22 to 23 years later, the population in the United States decreased by 22% a year. So the baby boomers actually had fewer children than their their forefathers. So there's not as many children of the baby boomers to take over the businesses. That's one issue. The second issue is the baby boomers, for whatever reason, wanted their children to, to, to go into white collar. They wanted them to be doctors and lawyers and engineers and uh, accountants and so forth. And so their, their uh, children have gone into these professions and are too busy doing their own thing to take over the business. The, the other thing is um, we've hit this uh, 
high-tech generation issue where the kids would rather work on iPads and, and technology rather than uh, going to run their businesses, uh, for their parents' businesses. What they've done is they have seen their parents work uh, seven days a week, sometimes 50, 60 hours a, a week for decades uh, building these businesses, and they do not want to buy them. They just don't want to be involved in them. And, and so the, the, the statistics show they just will not be there as, as potential buyers. There'll be some, but not statistically not very many. Well, you said the population uh, decreased, but we have this vast immigrant uh, immigration. And uh, for instance, uh, if you go to a, a Dunkin' Donuts, they're almost totally Asian-owned uh, and operated. Uh, uh, are are these people coming in and buying these businesses? You're talking about the immigrants, right? No, no, they're they're not uh, qualified to, in order to buy a business. You need to be able to put down uh, usually millions of dollars, and uh, you you need to be a substantial buyer because you need to not only buy the business, then you need to make it to where it can pay back the investment that you put into it. So no, the immigrants are are usually uh, you know uh, God bless them, but they're they're uh, workers or laborers, and they don't have the millions of dollars it takes to run a business usually, and also uh, they don't really have. Uh, the education and the, the decades of experience on how to run a complex business. I mean, if you're going to buy a manufacturing business, you need to know how, how to make the widgets, how to deliver the widgets, and then how to go get customers to buy the widgets and the whole process. Yes. Well, um, that's interesting. I've, I was just finishing a book on World War II uh, that talked about the, the effort put out by the America to build ships and everything else. And we seem to have lost that ability, um, and this seems to be the last generation that's, as as he said, the author said in his book, that worked with their hands um, and built uh, machine shops, etc. Is that what you're seeing too? Oh uh, yes. Well, there are there are a lot of high tech companies that that use mostly their minds, uh, but this baby boomer generation uh, followed the. The work ethic and a lot of the practices of their forefathers. So their forefathers uh, saved, saved our country. They saved the world in World War II. Uh, they, they, they grew up through the generation. Uh, actually, my, my grandfather was an entrepreneur, so I, I worked on his apple orchard up in Washington, and I saw how he worked. We, he worked seven days a week, 365 days a year. That's, I mean, that was his work ethic. Um, and uh, so uh, I would tend to agree with you that uh, uh, the baby boomers saw their forefathers how they worked, going through the, because there was an ethic, a work ethic. There was a, a savings ethic, a save money. And there was a, there was an ethic of, 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 of just uh, building something. And um, not, there's nothing wrong with building a high-tech company over, you know, some ideas and, and whatever. But that ethic has seemed to uh, dissipate it in, in our, in our uh, economy, unfortunately. Uh, you know, um, I'd like to pursue this a little further. I, uh, we will get into your book, I promise you, and what you're saying. But uh, you're the first guest I've had on that has, seems to have looked at this whole um, generation as a generational uh, problem. It's not a problem so much as transition. And uh, uh, people have said we've gone to a service economy, but we still need to produce uh, uh, the, the the tools and the dyes and everything else that goes with 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 the, a manufacturing so society are a lot of these companies that you're talking about 
those types of companies that will be coming on the market? Oh, yes. There's manufacturers. There's construction companies. There's uh, all, all across the board. Of course, there are service companies as well. Uh, service companies are, are, are going to be selling. So, yeah, it's, it's all, all across the board, almost in every industry imaginable uh, in the United States. So, yes, all those. There's 12 million of them, and, and they, they usually were built from scratch. Right. And to now those uh, baby boomers uh, want to retire, and something needs to happen with that business. Okay, now let's talk about um, your business. And um, uh, you were telling me earlier, uh, you provide um, CFL help to, to companies. Yes, uh, the, um, the businesses, there's a, a unique characteristic about a lot of these businesses. Uh, and uh, let's say the business is 10 million, 20 million, 30 million, 5 million uh, uh, in that range. These companies need right. the help and assistance of a, of a CFO, but they they either can't afford one, because CFOs are very expensive. You take a talent, someone who's really talented at, at, at treasury, getting money, and, and, and the finance side of, of running a business plus the financial side of the business, these people can, including uh, labor burden, healthcare, and, and so forth, can cost two hundred to $300,000. Well, it's usually not financially economical for these these businesses. A lot of these businesses pay that much money. And so what we did was we figured out a way to service them, to bring in uh, not only the same level of service that a full-time employee would bring in, but actually a higher level of service. And instead of paying two hundred fifty to 300000 a year, uh, they pay uh, our partners uh, on a 1099 basis, no contract. We, we work sort of the old-fashioned way. We shake hands. That's our contract. And so they could hire us for 30000 40000 a year, and we can take care of those issues. We can take them to the bank, get the money they need. We can work with their investors. We can do all those things, help them build the company so eventually helps, and also go through the process of helping them through their exit strategy. So we have, uh, and we work on site. Uh, so we've built a business to create a service for someone that's typically a full-time employee that the market typically can't afford to hire. That's a clever approach. Um, so now you have companies, uh, you're helping uh, develop an ex exit strategy, if I'm hearing you, as well as uh, um, helping them organize their financing. That's correct. Okay. Um, but let's let's take a typical company. What what are the some of the common things you find that they that have to be improved? Well, uh, when we're talking about an exit strategy, usually the the first thing that's on the table is the the business owner has a, a predetermined uh, number that he or she thinks the company is worth that can be sold for. Okay, and, and there's just a number that they have in their head, and and uh, uh, unfortunately. When they they hire uh, like an M and A firm, an investment banker, or someone who who comes in and, does, and, and works in that genre, that that whole area, the the price that the owner was wanting to sell versus the price that somebody that helps them sell are significantly different. It could it could be anywhere from a 50 to 80 percent decrease in value. So one of the things that we do is in a very gentle way, in a very uh, kind way, I think, is help them. Before we bring in the professionals, before we even consider who the buyer is, what we want to do is sit down and talk about what is the realistic value of the company. So we, we go through that calculation. It's actually on our dashboard software, along with the book we've invented 
software to, to, to go along with the book. Then, then what we do is we sit down with the owner and ask, okay, is that enough? Is that enough money? And if they say, oh, no, I've got to have more, well, what we do is we have a process to help them get the business built up to that value. Okay, uh, so we're not going to come in uh, and say, "Oh, your, your company's not worth X," and when it's worth that a lot of money, call us. We, we say, "No, okay, what what is it? What is the realistic value?" And then, what do you want it to be? Because they know what they need it to be. Because they they sell it. There's uh, there's uh, ordinary income tax. There's capital gains taxes uh, that they had to pay, uh, and a lot of time, and of course state taxes as well, and sometimes local taxes. And then uh, they typically, uh, because most buyers today buy assets, not the stock of the company, uh, they typically have to pay off uh, uh, vendors and lines of credit and so forth. So they, there's a certain uh, debt that they have right. to pay off. And so what we want to do is go through. Okay, if you want to do whatever. Um, I helped a client sell uh, a couple years ago, and, and his his value or what he wanted to do, he and his wife wanted to go to Brazil. So uh, I'm not sure exactly why they want to go to Brazil, but that's where they wanted to go, and 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 that's cool. Um, and so what we had to do is basically work backward, and we it took us six years to to get everything done to the point where we could sell it at the at that price that he wanted so he could retire and when he retired he was um uh, around 70 and then now he's happy somewhere living in Brazil. Uh, everybody has uh, their own Eden I, I suppose. They do whether they go to Brazil or Florida whatever makes them happy, right? You know, we're going to we're going to take a brief break okay. and then uh, we're, we're going to be back with you. Okay? All right? All right. Many small businesses purchase supplies, equipment, other needs through local stores. To save money on many of these purchases, consider Deem.com. This purchasing site offers real bargains and large discounts on many key items needed to run your business. And it's free to join and use. That's D-E-E-M.com. Again, D-E-E-M.com for all your small business needs. We're, we're back. We're back here with Jerry Mills. We're talking about the exit strategies of the tsunami that's about to, to occur. Which, quite frankly, the statistic that really set me back was 8,000 versus 780,000. 378. 300. Yeah. Now it, it may go that high. That that's an that's just an average of, of the. Not, so we may have years where. Uh, because of the, if you look at the statistics in the book of the peak of the baby boomers, because uh, they didn't have a level uh, birth rate, so there may be years where it's up as high as eight hundred thousand dollars, eight hundred thousand uh, companies that are putting themselves on the market, and, and so that's why we call it the baby boomer tsunami. Because you know what a tsunami, you know, right. tsunami is. There isn't anything you can do about it. It's just going to happen, right? And so that's why we coined that phrase. I want to know where, where you got that phrase from. From it's a great, great one, and really stuck. In my mind, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure. I just uh, came up with it. I wanted to be descriptive of, because uh, in the book I actually talk about several uh, tsunamis. For example, the, the the highest tsunami recorded in history happened in Alaska with 1,700 feet. 
another tsunami took four it started in, in Alaska and hit Hawaii 4.9 hours later and when it hit it was about 160 feet okay so when when it, when, it, when they're coming when tsunamis are coming there's absolutely nothing you can do you can't build a wall or put up a piece of glass or whatever and I thought this was appropriate to describe the baby boomers they they were born they own these businesses they are going to retire and or they're going to die, one of the two. And so, so I thought it was a very um, apropos way to describe what was, what was going to happen in the market. It's a tsunami. It's going to happen. And uh, either they're going to be prepared for it or they're not. What's happening, though, is the baby boomers don't know that the other baby boomers are going to be selling their business. They don't understand the, the law of supply and demand. And, uh, and it's not that they're not smart enough to do it. It's they just don't understand the numbers. Well, I, I've, I've been in the small business area for a long time, and until I, I heard, heard you and uh, this book, I hadn't even, uh, even thought about that, and uh, it, it's really extraordinary. You all, what I found, found in your book, you also provide some software. Yes, I do. Th that goes with it. Yes, uh, I do. For, it's, the name of the book is the Exit Strategy Handbook. It's by the video. You don't even... Uh, you don't even have your uh, authorship on here. It says by Jerry Mills, but you didn't even put it on the cover. Well, this is my third book, and, and this, is the, this is the book and the software that my firm uses, so I want people to know that this is what B2B CFO uses. Uh -huh. uh, and also, there are a lot of consultants that can use the book and software. They don't even need to be associated with B2B CFO. Well, but you know, Eleanor Roosevelt had a way of judging people by how long it took them to say the pronoun I. <laughs> so I, I always, uh, no, and no, I, I understand. This is our, as a company, it's we, it's our process. That's interesting. Now let's talk about. Um, I'm I'm a, I'm 62 years old, a man, and my my wife and I have worked in a company for. Uh, X number of years. Uh, what would be the first three? What would you go in? What would be the first three things you would ask that person? Well, the the first we've covered is is calculating the realistic value of the business. I want to know when they actually sell the business, the amount of money they need to retire on post taxes, post debt. I, I need to know that number. The the second thing we want to do is put together what we call a success team. We want to put together a team that can help. Uh, them pull this off because it's very difficult. We don't want them to do it themselves. The reason we don't want them to do it themselves is not that they're not smart enough. These are very bright people. They're, they're, uh, they follow, many of them followed their, their forefathers, the greatest generation, the World War II generation. They, they have high work ethic. But what we want them to do is we, during this process, which may take two or three years, we want them to be busy growing the business, both in terms of sales and EBITDA. We don't want them being pulled down into this process because it's very complicated. Because when they do that, uh, our stats show that, his, that the sales and EBITDA decrease. And then after two or three years, when sales and EBITDA decrease, the value of the company is less. And so what we want to do is... Let me interrupt you. Okay. EBITDA. Okay. What is it? Well, it's, uh, uh, it's uh, basically uh, adjusted net income. Or net income. It's uh, uh, earnings before interest, depreciation, taxes... Uh, and amortization. So, 
So it's 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 really the measurement that that it shows the liquidity of the company. Right. Okay. And so so actually we go by what's called an adjusted EBITDA. So we take EBITDA and, and adjust it. It's, it's basically shows the liquidity of the company. And then in a buyer, depending what kind of buyer is coming in, they're going to use a multiple of that EBITDA to to calculate the sales price. Yeah. There are other valuation methods, but that's one of the most common methods to use. Well, one of the questions of any good small business owner. Um, uh, somehow or other manages to put some of his or her own uh, expenses into the company. Do you take that into account? Yes, that's where we come up with the adjusted dividend. Uh, it, it's actually a catch-22 because business owners um, uh, tend to want to decrease income taxes, and so they will put personal expenses in, and we're not being judgmental, uh, they'll take a trip to Hawaii. Well, while they're there, they'll make some phone calls and do some emails and do some things. Okay, that's in, that's in, uh, in the profit and loss statement, okay? Uh, if the company is successful, they'll hire, we have nepotism, so they'll hire two or three or four uh, family members who are not really productive, okay, and they'll put those in there. Uh, they, uh, there may be a husband and wife, maybe they're empty nesters, uh, but they're dry, uh, they have four or five automobiles, and those are buried in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the profit and loss statement. So what we do, it's in our dashboard software into the book, we take EBITDA and we adjust it. We say, okay, if a buyer comes in, they're not going to take those family members. They're not going to uh, pay for the country club fees and the, the tickets to the Brooklyn Nets. Okay, so we have to go through a process to adjust what the value of the company is based on what a buyer would be uh, looking at right. on, on a heart. So, yes, we go through some adjustments um, only with the approval of the owner. But what we want to do is we, want, we don't want them to either get embarrassed or get frustrated with buyers. We don't want the buyer to come in and, and, and look under the hood and find these things. We're going to find them, get them fixed or get them normalized, if you would, before a buyer comes in and gets scared away. Because well, once a buyer comes in and gets scared away and leaves, they're gone forever. Right. And we don't want that to happen. We, so, yes, we go through and adjust. But, but it is a catch-22, isn't it? Uh, I want to keep my taxes lower, uh, but when I, when I use that uh, EBITDA number times a multiple, then my, my company uh, is, is, looks like on paper that it's worth less than it actually is. And so we have to go through and, and sort of fix things, if you would. Well, let me, uh, let me get back to siblings and children, et cetera. Do you ever run into the situation where you have, like, two brothers who are partners, and one has one objective and one has another? And uh, but the, what I'm really getting at is family conflict, which I see a lot of. That uh, that that issue, the nepotism issue, is very serious. If you have a minority shareholder or 50/50 or lower than that, and it's a family member, and that family member doesn't want to sell, or when they sell, they want more a bigger piece of the pie, or they want whatever they want, and they're not on the same page, that actually can can totally kill the deal. And, and and so uh, typically in those situations we have to sit down and say okay what what do all the family members who own the stock want and and sometimes we need to go through a situation where we actually buy them out before we do the transaction because the transaction will not happen if there's if there's this infighting uh, the minute the buyer comes in they're going to see this infighting and they're going to walk away. Well, how do you find the buyer if it, if it's going to be a buyer's market? Uh, do you help them find the bu a buyer? 
Uh, indirectly, yes. On the team, uh, we have, depending upon the sales of the sales, uh, in the company, we're going to help them bring in either uh, an M&A firm or an investment banker, depending upon the, the size of the company. So we are going to bring in help bring in the people who can find the buyer after we've sort of fixed. It's like a house. We're going to paint the house and do the landscaping and remodel the kitchen. We're going to get things looking good before we bring in a potential buyer. So we do not, at B2B CFO, we are not an M&A firm or investment bankers, but we bring them in at the proper time. Um, when is the proper time for for a company uh, it's after after we've gone through this process and we may be four to five months away to selling and doing the transaction and then the m a firm the investment banker is going to try to bring in three three or four or five different buyers we're going to go through the process of who's the best buyer and surprisingly it's interesting it's not always the buyer that's offering the most money a lot of times uh, they'll sell to somebody that has the same values or somebody who's going to protect their employees or, or other things. They're going to do things with the community. Uh, so we, want, we, want, we actually want companies bidding against that. that, that uh, we want buyers bidding against uh, the seller's business. Uh, so, but usually uh, the best time is when this thing is ready to trip, uh, four or five months when it's ready to trip, because there, there's some, a little bit of process that has to go through. Let's talk about employees. Uh, if, if word gets out that the, the owners are selling, uh, there's a lot of noise that starts building up. How do you handle that? That's a question I get asked a lot. That's a, a serious problem. Um, I, I work with a consultant uh, from South Carolina that, and that says in these situations the biggest threat leads leadership first. And what happens is if you're not careful in that situation, uh, well, in the package to sell to the buyer, you're including the employees that have the technology, the abilities, whatever, to, to build the widgets and do things. If those employees leave, the, the value of the company is significantly uh, uh, dropped. In that situation, uh, what you have to do is you have to do full disclosure to the employee, and you don't want to give them stock or any ownership, but what you want to do is offer them a piece of the pie uh, to stay. And not only stay, but go through the transition to stay maybe six months, uh, a year, or longer after the transition. So we don't want to give them stock or equity or anything like that. We want to give them a, a, a what I call stay bonus or a transition bonus. Right. So we're going to give them some money. Otherwise, they're going to leave because they think they're going to lose their job. They're going to go to somebody else and, and, and add, add value to that company. So that's a very sensitive situation, and that's the best way to handle that. Well, we could talk here all night. Uh, uh, I'm going to invite you back to come, okay. if you uh, if you will, because uh, uh, I know our audience, uh, this is a, a great concern, and we're all worried about that tsunami of any sort, but that one, uh, we definitely have to come back. Okay. So um, uh, without further uh, ado, I'd like to in, uh, invite Allison Nickel to join us. Allison, are you on? I am. Thank you so uh, much for having me, Donald. No, thank you for being so patient. Um, uh, Allison, we're, we're going to talk about Obamacare and how it's small business. Um, uh, uh, what's going to happen? So, and you're supposed to be the expert. <laughs> oh, well, I, I hope I, I know a little bit. Um, I guess maybe I'll start by introducing myself. And that that um, is my next question. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
So my name is Allison Nickel. I'm based out of uh, Tacoma, Washington. So my background is in uh, HR compliance and uh, went to the University of Washington um, in Seattle. And my focus was actually in finance. Don't ask me how I fell into HR, but I love it. And I really enjoy the um, compliance component. And that's kind of how I delved into the um, what you referred to as Obamacare, or what others can call the PPACA, the ACA, healthcare reform, all really the same thing. So. Um, also, uh, I am currently with a brokerage, an insurance brokerage, out of Tacoma, Washington, Alvarez & Company. And we are um, a partner firm in United Benefit Advisors. UBA is a national organization of more than 140 independent advisory insurance firms. So that's a little bit um, on my background. So hopefully I'll, I'll have some good information, at least for anybody listening on um, health care reform. Well, for, um, uh, surveys have shown that uh, at least 40% uh, of Americans, if not more, really don't understand what's going to happen in, on January 1st, uh, 2014. Mm -hmm. um, we're starting to see the stories appearing, and we're starting to see um, uh, people waking up to this. And the Wall Street Journal today said that uh, uh, it, it didn't look as if the uh, exchanges were going to be fully impl implemented. But first, uh, w what do you see? I'm a small business owner, whether it's under 50 employees or, or over 50. What are the issues facing me as a, uh, an employer? Well, I think some of the issue is um, just concerns. You know, we got the question, um, isn't this a written law? What's so confusing about it? Um, well, of course, it's a, it's a written law, um, but uh, what we're unsure of is really what will happen once the changes in 2014 are actually implemented. We're not quite sure how um, insurance carriers in the market are going to react, whether or not, um, you know, the new provisions that are introduced in 2014, how they will affect the market. Um, also, laws, they're written, but they definitely change, and that's kind of what we're experiencing right now. And a lot of employers are starting, like you said, to wake up. They're trying to um, kind of scramble to understand how the law will affect them and their employees. Well, yeah, uh, that is very much the case. Um, uh, uh, our, our readers ask us all the time, uh, what should I do? And uh, uh, it really, uh, one of the things that I, I notice is that uh, it depends on what your workforce is. If it's old, if it's made up of older people, you have one set of problems. If you're made up of younger people, you have a different set of uh, opportunities, as one per person put it. Um, what should I do if I have an older sales force, uh, older workforce? Well, a lot of that depends on, um, like you had mentioned, the size of the employer. Um, if you do have an older workforce, if you provide health insurance for them currently, um, you know, you want to make sure that you educate, depending on their age, you want to make sure you educate them on um, what is going to be available to them in 2014. If you're a small employer, you may choose to um, participate in the small 
employer health insurance exchange. That would be an opportunity um, to open that up to older folks. Obviously, also, um, Medicare is, an, is, is available. Um, that's not something you, you know, def- definitely want, you don't want to encourage individuals to participate in Medicare, but they should be educated, especially if they're of Medicare age. Um, if you have a younger workforce, you definitely want, you want to educate them on um, how how the what they're calling the individual mandate will affect them because it's it's essentially going to affect almost every American. Um, you know whether or not you have um, uh, the the availability of employer offered coverage, uh, Medicare, Medicaid. Um, or then again, there's also the individual market. There's a bunch of different um, avenues that individuals are kind of being bombarded with right now, and each individual really needs to look at their um, own current situation and um, also their family members because it's not just um, you. You know, you may have uh, minimum essential coverage being offered to you through your employer, but then you also need to think of your dependent children, your domestic partners, so anyone else in your family. Because if if you as an individual um, do not gain minimum essential coverage by January 1st of 2014, you would be subject to an individual penalty. Well, uh, I might also add a lot of these variables vary by state. But I thought there was an interesting column today in the Wall Street Journal pointing out that if you're a young person uh, you, uh, instead, in, and you've not had insurance, health care insurance, you're being asked to spend $5,000 on average mm-hmm. for um, health care insurance, whereby um, uh, you only have to pay $600 for, um, um, for, 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 for a penalty. Um, and uh, was pointing out uh, again. We're not uh, arguing the merits of the law. It's just um, um, many many small businesses that I've talked to over the last year and a half on this issue seem to be un, um, unsure whether they should uh, slip below the the 50 or even 30 employee limit and not offer insurance. And those that are um, on the fence and are, are currently offering it, but I haven't yet to run into a uh, company that's planning to move ahead and offer uh, health care insurance. Have you seen that? Um, what was the last part of your question? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, I was uh, uh, all I was basically saying is, do you see companies uh, going to, moving forward to uh, offer health care insurance? Uh, who, uh, hadn't offered, who hadn't offered it before? Absolutely. We are actually currently seeing quite a few employers um, that, you know, are evaluating the market and are beginning to, to formulate plans to offer coverage either prior to January 1, 2014, um, or beginning January 1 of 2014. Um, a lot of those, though, are... Um, the larger employers, so that means they're above 50 full-time equivalents that essentially would be subject to the penalties. Um, I have I have not uh, currently seen a, a small business that's just kind of starting up coverage yet, um, but I do see benefits in offering, um, you know, employee, employer-sponsored coverage. Definitely it makes you more competitive, um, you know, 
business out there, obviously, um, you know, especially, I mean, I look at it as an added bonus, essentially when um, an employer offers uh, health benefits to me. Um, Sometimes it it takes a lot um, in the education process, too, to educate employees um, on the actual, the cost of health care and health insurance coverage, because that can be, you know, that's an added bonus to their paycheck that they're not always seeing all the time. So sometimes it it takes an employer to educate employees on, here's what we are contributing towards your health care coverage. And, you know, it's it's not an inexpensive uh, benefit, but it definitely, um, you know, it takes care of a financial you know, a, a financial aspect of, of taking care of your employees, ensuring that they're uh, financially sound. Um, but to answer your question, um, I, I'm really seeing seeing the uh, the larger employers um, that are are gearing up to offer healthcare coverage uh, prior to or on January 1 of 2014. Well, I want to talk more with you, but first we we have to have a commercial break. If you'll stand by, we'll be back in just a 30 seconds. Want to know more about health savings accounts for your company or yourself? Go to 2hsa.com and get a free employer's primer. Health savings accounts are a cost-effective way of offering health care benefits to your employees and yourself. HSAs build retirement funds for your employees, improve morale, and reduce your health care benefit costs. For a free employer guide to HSAs, go to 2HSA.com. That's 2HSA.com. Uh, We're back here with with Allison and and Nickel, and we're talking about uh, uh, the accountable... uh, the ACA, PPACA, or, or well, my my term, Obamacare, and uh, I, uh, Allison, I'll ask a question. Let's talk about the exchanges. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, tell us about them. Tell tell us them how they will affect small businesses. Okay. Um, well, I guess the first thing is that um, exchanges, are, they're also ca- called marketplaces, and um, I think you had noted before that it is definitely um, unique to each state. Uh, you know, here in Washington, we have, our state has opted to not only expand um, Medicaid, we have also um, decided to operate our own exchange versus a federally run exchange. So I guess small businesses need to be aware of um, what their state has decided to do. There are some states that still haven't made decisions. So um, it's just something I think that's that's number one in the education process is knowing whether or not your exchange is going to be federally run or state run. Um, and also uh, be aware of um, what uh, plans are going to be offered through the shop, which is just, that's the small um, the, that's a small business exchange essentially. So that's what's referred to as the shop versus the individual exchange, which is for individuals that are gaining coverage for themselves. So um, small businesses need to evaluate uh, what coverage is going to be available to them through the exchanges. 
and then also what coverage is going to be offered outside of the exchange. Um, for example, here in Washington State, um, we currently only have one carrier that's participating for 2014, so therefore the options are very limited to small businesses inside of the exchange. Um, but there are still quite a few options outside of the exchange. Um, one thing to note is um, there's been a lot of talk about the, um, the small employer tax credit. That essentially is only available for small businesses that participate in gaining coverage through the small business exchange, the shop. So if you purchased a plan outside of the exchange, you would not be eligible for the small um, employer tax credit. Um, there's also certain criteria that needs to be met in order to be um, eligible for that tax credit. Um, but I do think small businesses do need to educate themselves on um, the plans offered in each state, um, either through the small business exchange and also outside of that exchange. It's interesting you brought up that uh, particular program because uh, uh, it, uh, participation in it uh, in, in its first two years has been relatively low and uh, the subject mm -hmm. of congressional hearings and much hand-wringing by many people. But uh, having looked at the, uh, the application form and what goes on, um, it, it's an extremely difficult program to to uh, one, gain a, a admission to, and two, to administer. And um, please comment. Yeah, yeah, you are you are correct. It is it's very specific in its criteria. Um, I, if I off the top of my head, um, I believe it's for employers with uh, 25 or fewer employees with an average annual income of I want to say 50,000 or less give or take. Um, and so, and then I, I, it's my understanding that the actual application process is a little more cumbersome than just to push up the button. Um, an example, I mean, our, here in Washington State and uh, within our brokerage, we have not had any of our um, small business, our, our small business clientele um, qualify for the tax credit. Um, so I don't actually have specific experience um, with any small business owners that have qualified or actually gone through the application process, but it is my understanding that it's a little more cumbersome than just typing in some numbers and pushing a button. I love the fact that you said off the top of your head, there are probably not a hundred, one out of a hundred people could even um, know that. So you really know your subject. Um, uh, <laughs> I feel like I've been living in it in the last, uh, I'd say, two years. So um, I do. I really, really enjoy it. But it is. It's definitely. It's uh, an. It's an evolving um, law, and it's very, very complicated. And I, I really am here to try and educate individuals and employers the best that I can to ensure that they're making qualified and educated decisions on on because there are some major changes in 2014 that affect my friends and family and my coworkers. So. Well, um, your company has also put together a primer for that, which they have sent to me to be posted on our website mm -hmm. at, the, at the, the number two sbdigest.com, and it will be published this coming Friday along with a link to this radio program. So that uh, tell us how the people can get in touch with you. 
Um, people can get in touch with me uh, directly um, if they're located in Washington State by just contacting Albers and Company. But if um, throughout the nation, um, like I said, we're uh, we participate in United Benefit Advisors uh, UBA, which is uh, again a national firm um, of over 140. Um, independently owned insurance agencies and essentially you would want to contact your UBA firm that's closest to you and essentially you can just go onto UBA's website and locate um, the closest insurance brokerage and it, the thing about it is I think um, talking thinking about talking to an insurance broker or an agency sounds a little overwhelming or intimidating but even as an individual small business owner a large business owner um, even if you have questions um, all of us are willing to answer them you don't have to be a client to get your questions answered we we are here to help well there's been an argument that uh, Obamacare will ultimately be the um, death knell for uh, brokers in the healthcare ins in the insurance field. You want to comment? Yeah, <laughs> I kind of feared that this question was coming. Um, we definitely, you know, it, we've been reading it since 2010, um, and ultimately, I, I think uh, the PPACA or the ACA or healthcare reform essentially has um, really opened up some opportunity uh, for um, independently owned and also, of course, uh, national brokerages across the country. Uh, really what it is is I think those brokerages that are trying to inform their clients and uh, keep on top of the law and do the best they can to ensure that um, employers throughout the country are making um, good decisions um, in the healthcare world, whether you know, be, mean it's establishing a wellness program or trying to manage risk, things like that. As long as um, brokerages stay on top of those sorts of things, I think they'll be on the edge. And uh, you know, there may be some 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 firms that that do um, fall away because you know there will be different avenues for gaining coverage um, I definitely think there's still um, an amazing market for us out there and I do feel like we make a difference um, in individuals and employers uh, lives and and in helping them make good decisions for their employees well, I agree with you um, but the, the insurance companies, the healthcare insurance companies, have been cutting commissions the last two years uh, and trying to uh, force um, uh, uh, consumers and companies to come to their own company websites, uh, which I feel, especially in this time of uh, uh, change, or as the Chinese say, may you live in interesting times. Um, uh, having an agent explain things would be uh, advantageous to any small business, whether it's two employees or 500. Um, Absolutely. Let, uh, I'm all with you on this one because uh, uh, I've been studying it for two and a half years, and every time I think I have a regulation figured out, a new regulation comes down the pike that puts that one <laughs> Uh, and if you're doing the same thing, you've seen that, right? Oh yeah. I mean, it, it, it's um, you really. It's it's hard for an employer. They're doing enough to try and um, run their business, let alone uh, manage all of the regulations and compliance that come, um, you know, with owning a business. Uh, you know, it's amazing uh, what's 
what's out there and what's changing constantly. And really, that's what we're here for. Um, it's not. It doesn't need to be the employer's burden or job to keep up on those regulations. That's really we're here to educate and ensure that, you know, uh, employers are in compliance with whether it be, you know, PPACA or, um, you know, FMLA or any of those regulations out there. That's really our responsibility to ensure that that employers stay in compliance and kind of take that off the shoulders of, you know, one little piece off the uh, the uh, employers. Uh, back so well um, let's go a a little further Um, I'm a small business owner Um, I right now I don't offer insurance I'm thinking that with let's uh, if I have 51 employees I'm in one category and if I have 49 employees I'm a different one uh, everybody is worried, uh, and employee hiring, uh, small business employee hiring has been flat or slightly decreasing over the last year and a half. Um, are there advantages to staying under that 50 uh, employee limit? You know, there there are advantages. Um, there's also some disadvantages. Some of the advantages. Um, to staying under the 50 is essentially you're not subject to um, penalties. Um, you're also not required to change the um, your hourly eligibility requirement to uh, 30 hours per week. Um, but then you're also you're in a different pool when it comes to um, essentially how they rate your insurance that's available to your employees. So. Uh, you're also limited in your flexibility with your plan design, um, and you're also limiting your own growth as a small employer. Um, you know, it's it's hard to say which is better um, because there are advantages to both and disadvantages to both. Um, but really, I, it makes me sad to hear that that employers are not hiring or trying to grow their business. Um, you know, to avoid avoid the penalties. So. Um, I think that's just one of the little little pieces in the law that might eventually might eventually change, but not quite sure. Um, again, I, I I see this law as evolving down the line once we kind of you know these are unintended consequences of of a law that oftentimes could potentially change. I'm I'm not saying they will, but <laughs> you know it, I don't think when they were writing the law they foresaw that people would avoid hiring to to remain under you know 50 employees. Well, you know, in Italy, their companies are either very small or very uh, big because um, in between is a morass of regulations, and uh, they've, they've just they've just loosened some of them uh, uh, after all this time. But uh, let me ask you a different question: um, self-insurance, small business self-insurance. Now that's a that's a hot topic if you judge by the media. Have you run into that at all? You know, um, self insurance specifically is is definitely not my expertise, um, but we're seeing a lot more um, inquiry about it, and um, it depends on on what's right for. Uh, the employer itself. Um, again, it's it's not really my expertise, so. Um, I wouldn't. Enough, enough I wouldn't said. have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, 
I, I, I like a guest who admits uh, uh, that's not my expertise. Uh, uh, if you, um, if if a company came to you today and they were in your state, uh, what what would what would be the three questions you'd ask them uh, about uh, what they sh can and should be doing? Well, I think number one is, um, you know, what is your strategy in regards to offering employee benefits? Because they may be flat out honest and say, I don't, I don't want to offer benefits. Um, that's a very important question um, because not only is that really what's uh, behind kind of what we do, but I think that would be number one. Um, you know, what is their strategy going forward? Number two is. Um, I think it's important to understand uh, what their, uh, you know, motivation for offering benefits is. Is it just to offer benefits or is it to uh, take care of their employees? I think that helps when it comes to uh, suggesting a plan design, plan offering, different benefit options. Um, then, you know, I think three is what is their, you know, what is their long-term goals? Are they, do they want to grow as a company? If they want to grow as a company, then, you know, what is their long-term benefit strategy? If they just want to remain as is, then, you know, what is a, a long-term strategy for a company that just wants to remain at a certain level? I think those are pretty important questions to understand about an employer um, before you start making suggestions as to what sort of benefit offerings they should be providing or, um, you know, what what really ultimately we can offer them. Well, uh, in, in the time we have remaining, um, what do you see the future uh, uh, we all expect change. Uh, do you see a lot of chaos? Um, well, the, the chaos is the wrong word. A lot of uncertainty over the next six months <coughs> as we prepare. You know, I really, I, I do. Um, I'm starting to kind of see it ramp up um, right now. A lot of questions from employers, a lot of questions from employees. I think it's important to try and keep it as simple as possible. Um, and I know that that's difficult when it comes to a complicated law um, and some major changes that are coming on, but um, there's some great uh, resources out there for individuals and employers that um, they can definitely take advantage of. Um, and I think as long as, uh, and I think I also, I, I believe there'll be some major, camp, you know, campaigns on, uh, you know, the individual mandate and exchanges uh, offering coverage to individuals. Um, I think one of the hard thing change is difficult for everybody. Um, it's a lot harder for some people than others, and um, I think it's going to be very important um, to get the information out to, to all Americans and certain types of media, all different kinds of media. Um, and I, I, but I do see, I do see some, some, some panic coming down the line right now, which is good because they're starting early, I guess. Um, but I think ultimately um, there's some really good things that have come along uh, with the PPACA, and there will probably more than likely be some changes uh, that will kind of ease ease the pain as we go forward. 
Allison, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Uh, I learned a lot. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we we look forward to having you back a little further down into the year when we've seen a little bit more. I hope you'll come back. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much. Have a nice night. Thank you. Summer days are upon us, and it's time to slow down a little and think about what we will do during the last few months of the year. If the surveys and polls are right, this has been a year where small businesses have treaded water, optimism has wavered, but not really moved upward from last year. Clearly, the nation is just moving along, and we see little chance of robust robust growth for another year. Small business hiring is flat. Sales are moving up only marginally, and the transition to cloud technology is vexing many small business leaders. One thing the cloud has done is ma- making it easier for, to start a new business. In fact, that is the only good news in the in- economic picture. There are an awful lot of new businesses starting. But as our guest pointed out today, there are t- 10 million small business owners reaching retirement ages. This factor alone will have a powerful impact on existing small business owners. As he called it, um, it it's going to be a tsunami. The bright spot is that small business owners are optimistic, as are most Americans. That is why we here at Small Business Digest are optimistic for the future. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. We're here every every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. You can also find us on the web at 2sbdigest.com and smallbusinessdigestmag.com. If you like what you heard today, tell others about our efforts. If you'd like to be a guest or suggest topics for future hours, uh, email me at dmazella at is-incorp.com. We also like to remind listeners that besides our radio efforts, Small Business Digest comes to you via the web on the number 2sbdigest.com and our magazine, which can be downloaded uh, from our website, smallbusinessdigestmag.com. Good night.